this is Christy, and you're listening to Making Herstory. Welcome back to episode three. I took a couple of weeks off for vacation. I went to the beach, socially distant, of course. I hope everyone is staying safe in this crazy, chaotic time that we're living in. Today, we're going to discuss the origins of women's rights in the United States and the formation of an organized movement for suffrage during the 19th century. We're going to look at key players, events, and ideas that defined the early days of the movement for women's rights. So, as always, grab a cup of tea. Sit back, relax, and let's get started. Before we begin talking about 19th century women's rights, I want to first cover a couple of terms that I think are important. Women's rights and women's suffrage are often used interchangeably in general conversation. In reality, they're very specific movements. Historians typically refer to the 19th century as a movement for women's rights. These people were concerned with a broader conversation about women's rights. It wasn't just about the vote. In fact, the vote was the last thing on their agenda. The 20th century more focused on women's suffrage specifically as the cure-all approach for broader issues. It's also important to note that the term feminism is also broadly applied. Feminism by definition is the belief that women are equal socially, politically, and economically, or if they are not, then they should be. Feminism is more so a 20th century philosophy. It definitely has its roots in the 18th and 19th century, and we're going to talk briefly about that today. Even though many of these women advocated for things that would be considered feminist, they themselves themselves might not be considered feminist or would consider themselves feminist because it's not really a term that is applicable to these time periods. During this talk, I am going to be referring to women's rights as the 19th century movement. When we get to the end of the 19th century, post-Civil War, you'll hear me start to say women's suffrage instead of women's rights because it's really after the Civil War that the movement started to shift from one of broad women's rights to one more focused on women's suffrage. First, let's talk about the Enlightenment and revolutionary influences. The women's rights movement did not just miraculously appear in the 19th century United States. For as long as history has been recorded, there have been people talking about women's issues and women's rights. Let's briefly look at what role women had in society in the colonial Enlightenment revolutionary era. So this would be the 17th and 18th century. In this time, period, women were covered by their husbands. This was a term called coverture. And what this meant is that the moment a woman became married, she no longer existed under the law. In fact, it was almost as if she had died because legally she had no rights under the law. Her husband's rights were meant to cover her. And this extended into issues such as divorce, property, and child custody. And this was so prevalent that when women died, they were referred to as relics on their gravestones. Relics meaning the property of their husband. Married women did not have any legal rights. Younger women didn't have very many rights either. They could inherit property if it was written into the will of their father. Once a woman got married, everything 
shifted to her husband. So any money that the wife had prior to her marriage, whether it was a dowry given to her by her family or a property that she inherited, once she got married, all of that legally became the property of her husband. Under coverture, women could not get divorced. Men could divorce their wives, but women could not divorce their husbands. Even in cases of abuse, divorce was not an option. Property rights was an issue. Married women could not own property. They could not have their own money money and child custody. Women were not given child custody. It was believed that the child, like the wife, was the property of the husband. This is just kind of a brief snapshot of what life was like in the colonial revolutionary time period. And this is really important because it gives us an idea of what women's experiences were when people started advocating the idea of women's rights. So all of this has been said to kind of set the scene for the American Revolution because it's the American Revolution that really launches women's rights in the United States. For several years, there was this movement of enlightenment where people were starting to question things, making arguments about the role between the government and the citizen. A lot of these philosophers really influenced the writers of our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. And some of these writers, like Thomas Paine, were private advocates of women's rights but didn't speak out on it publicly. Thomas Paine, who is best known for his common sense, which is said to have been the primary influence on the writing of the Declaration. John Locke, who began to argue that a citizen's rights are not given to them by any government, but they come from a higher authority, a higher power, and that these natural rights apply to every human being. Now, John Locke probably meant every man, but this idea that rights are applied not by government, but by a higher authority is something that truly influenced women's rights. And then, of course, the most significant Enlightenment philosopher that really spoke out on women's rights was a woman named Mary Wollstonecraft. She wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Women. Some historians like Christine Stansel in her book The Feminist Promise, you'll hear me reference that book a lot, argue that Wollstonecraft is a problematic heroine or shero for women's rights because she was pretty contemptuous of women as a gender. I argue that her work still serves as a, a very significant influence on women's rights because she's essentially saying, hey, all of these ideas that the Enlightenment philosophers are writing about, that women are citizens too, and women have a right to have economic freedoms, political freedoms, and social freedoms. Mary Wollstonecraft is often considered to be the start of modern feminism. Ultimately, the revolution itself played a huge role in leading to women's rights. Women played a major role in the American Revolution. In fact, there would not have been a revolution without women. As we stated in the last podcast when I interviewed Regina Wallace, the social studies coordinator for Clayton County Public Schools, we had a conversation about how most people don't realize that women were the driving force of the revolution, that the men get all the credit, but it was really the daughter's of liberty and the women who were pushing the boycotts, spreading the word from household to household. Women were not just boycotting, not just acting as economic patriots, but they were also spies, nurses, camp women traveled and followed the military camps around cooking and cleaning. Women were the backbone of the American Revolution. And elite women played a role in questioning, you know, whether women would be able to 
participate in this new country. And these women were called women of letters because they wrote a lot of their ideas down in letters. And some of these women were correspondents with incredibly prominent men, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, George Washington. And so you have women like Mercy Otis Warren who argued that women should not divorce themselves from politics. Judith Sargent Murray, when she writes her pamphlet on the equality of sexes, is one of the first to advocate not just for women's rights, but for women's equality. And this is a huge deal in the 18th century. And then Abigail Adams, who infamously wrote to her husband, John Adams, when they were creating the declaration and encouraging him to remember the ladies in this new form of government that they were wanting to create, to which John Adams wrote the 18th century equivalent of, ha ha, you got jokes. After the revolution, there existed this moment. Rosemary Zagari wrote about this very thing in her book, Revolutionary Backlash, which is a really good book if you haven't read it. But there existed this moment where there was this question about whether or not women and also free blacks were going to be participants in this new democracy. A lot of these questions are beginning to be debated. The idea of universal suffragehood, whether or not women should be allowed to participate as voters. And some states even allowed for this to happen. Between 1776 and 1807, New Jersey allowed women of property and free blacks to vote. And then in 1807, the legislature stripped these two groups of their right. Women and blacks would not get the right to vote again until much later. A lot of this was because the French Revolution was happening and women were playing an active role in the French Revolution and often were inciting violence, inciting the use of the guillotine and being incredibly radical with bread riots, targeting the monarchy. And this scared a lot of the men in power, had a lot of individuals making arguments that women didn't need to be involved in politics because they couldn't handle it. They were too emotional. All of this discussion about the French Revolution really shifted people into arguing that no, women do not need to vote. Women do not need to be in public life at all. They can't handle it. Let's leave it to the men. And over time, an argument began to emerge that women needed to be educated, yes, but not for their own purposes. Women needed to be educated so that they could then educate their sons who would then become active citizens in this new democracy. This ideology of Republican motherhood laid a foundation for how people thought of women and their political role. As we shift to the early 19th century, we begin to see that solidification of separate spheres ideology. The belief that men and women are biologically different and therefore should have different roles in society. And that men should occupy the public realm, politics, economics, law, and women the private realm, the domestic sphere, motherhood, marriage, religion. And that these two realms should not interact. Men should not interfere with women's roles. Women should not interfere with men's roles, although it didn't always work that way. This ideology of separate spheres really began to influence the modern American family and how men and women viewed each other. It valued femininity and women's roles
roles in the home as wife and mother. Separate spheres ideology also shifted into a value system that emerged from 19th century Great Britain and came over to the United States called the cult of true womanhood. It was the idea that there were values of true womanhood that were to be honored. In other words, these four values were things that every woman should possess. And if she didn't possess these values, then she was not a real woman and she would not make a good wife or a good mother. And these were piety, purity, in other words, being a virgin before marriage. There was a belief in the early 19th century that women weren't supposed to enjoy sex. This played a huge role in the cult of true womanhood values. Domesticity, meaning she should be good at cooking, cleaning, sewing, all of those domestic things that pertain to the house. And one that I have never been particularly very good at, (laughs) submissiveness. A woman should at all times submit to her husband, submit to her father, submit to the greater authority of a man in her life. These values of purity, piety, domesticity, and submissiveness influenced a lot uh, of women's lives. Now, this is not to say that women were not involved in public life. They were. And it is a huge misconception to suggest that women were not involved in public life. These were just ideas about how women should be, but ignores the complex reality that if you were a working class woman, You didn't have time to worry about purity, piety, and domesticity. You were too busy trying to make a life for your family. Women were involved in public life, despite all of these messages that told them that they shouldn't be. And a lot of women's early activism began out of religion. For those of you who don't remember your high school history class, the Second Great Awakening was a religious revival at the turn of the 19th century that emphasized salvation for all. on which denomination you subscribe to, whether it was Baptist, Methodist, Quaker, Episcopalian, salvation for all could mean salvation for most or salvation for all. So it really just depended on how liberal with a lowercase l you were with your interpretation of the word all. The Second Great Awakening, it increased the amount of religious communities in the United States. And since religion was one of the areas that was considered to be the domain of the woman because it was the women who held up the church and it was the women who went to church, women became very involved in the church. And it was often the church where a lot of this activism began. At this time, there was the start of a market economy. More and more people are starting to work outside of their homes and not just men work outside of their homes but women too. In fact, we see the emergence of the factory system, which started in a place called Lowell, Massachusetts. And because the men were needed on the farm, the only people who were expendable and able to go to the factories were unmarried women. And so many of these factory towns like Lowell, Massachusetts would recruit young unmarried women to come and live in the town and work in the factory so that they could earn money. By beginning to work in this factory system, a lot of women began to gain greater economic independence. We start to see the creation of more women's colleges. And a lot of them are created because of this idea of Republican motherhood, the idea that we have to educate women so that they can educate their sons. Overall, what this did was it opened up doors for women to start wanting more for themselves and demanding more rights for themselves. Because if you're working in a job earning your own money, you may start asking the question of, 
Well, I earn money just like a man. Why can't I have a say in who makes the laws about my factory? Or I'm getting an education and learning. Why can't I have a say in who creates the curriculum? The economic and educational opportunities and the involvement in religious activism ignited this greater desire for women's rights and the greater role of women in public life. Now, there were two key movements that really started this. The first was the temperance movement. And the temperance movement was an anti-alcohol movement. And this was a mixed movement, meaning men and women. But women had a greater stake in this because there were a lot of reasons for advocating for temperance. One, men who drank up their income in saloons often created poverty conditions for their families. There was the religious aspect that it goes against Christian morality to drink so heavily. And then of course, abuse. Drunk men often lose their inhibitions and can lead to violence. And so domestic abuse was a huge issue. And since back then, the woman was considered the property of the husband and the husband could beat his wife however he wanted and no one could stop him. It became central to the temperance argument that men by definition are not violent, but when they drink, that incites them to violence. And so if you remove the alcohol, you remove the violence. Temperance became a huge movement where women could get involved, whether it was through the American Temperance Society or the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which would become one of the largest women's groups in the country. But by and large, the movement that had a dramatic impact on the future of women's rights in the United States was the abolition movement. There had always been people, especially people of religious groups like the Quakers, who argued against slavery because they believed it was just evil. In the early 19th century, abolitionists were still few and far between. In fact, they only made up about 1% of the total population of the United States. Now, throughout the 19th century, they gained a lot of ground, and which is one of the reasons that led to the, the Civil War, because abolition was becoming more popular and more people began to see slavery for the evil that it was. But in the early 19th century, abolitionists were an outspoken fringe group. And even with abolitionists, there were groups that were even more radical than people who just said slavery is evil, let's end it. One of these groups was called the American Anti-Slavery Society and it was founded in 1833 by a man named William Lloyd Garrison. Garrison was a passionate radical who believed not only in ending slavery, but he believed in racial equality and he believed in gender equality. Garrison was truly a man before his time. And one of the things that Garrison did was he put prominent women front and center. So even within abolitionist groups, there were still some pretty conservative people who said, yes, yeah, slavery is evil, let's fight it. But women should still not speak before mixed groups of men and women. Women should still be at home. This goes to show that just because you're liberated in one area doesn't mean that you can't be extremely unliberated in another area. Not all abolitionists agreed to the extent that Garrison did with racial and gender equality. Garrison was a passionate advocate for women's rights and later women's suffrage. And we'll talk more about Garrison in a future episode. But for right now, the important thing to know about Garrison is that he truly made it possible for women to become outspoken opponents of slavery. Some of these women include Maria Stewart, who was the first woman to speak publicly before a mixed audience, both mixed in terms of gender, men and women, and race 
black and white. And she gave a speech, What If I Am a Woman, which influenced Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman speech many years later. Abby Kelly Foster, who was a public speaker for the Garrisonians, the American Anti-Slavery Society. She was also one of the first ones to link abolition with women's rights. The Grim K sisters from South Carolina, these were Southern white wealthy women from a slave-owning family who spoke out against slavery and were disowned for advocating against slavery. Not only did they advocate against slavery, but they were active advocates for women's rights. And these are things, when you look at the things that they argued for, these were things that women still work for. Equal pay for women, which is something that we're still dealing with in 2020. Education, custody of children, maternity rights, divorce rights. These are all things that these sisters from South Carolina are advocating for in the early 19th century. They were fierce, passionate advocates for women's rights. Angelina Grimke once stated, it is a woman's right to have a voice in all the laws and regulations by which she is to be governed. Sarah Grimke once said, I surrender not our claim to equality. All I ask of our brethren is that they will take their feet from off our necks. I just think that's such a great quote. And it really speaks to how passionate the Grimke sisters were. But they were not alone. Lucretia Mott, who was a Quaker minister, she was a prominent abolitionist and would later become a prominent women's rights advocate. And of course, one of my personal favorites, Lucy Stone. Now, Lucy Stone was the first woman from Massachusetts to earn a college degree. And she also linked abolition and women's rights. She was a public speaker and she was such a charismatic speaker and she was so passionate about women's rights that when one of the abolitionists told her basically, sis, you need to tone it down, her response to him was, I was a woman before I was an abolitionist. And that basically shut him up. Lucy Stone is also known for marrying a man younger than her named Henry Brown Blackwell, who has his own connection to suffrage and women's rights. And we'll talk about Henry later because I like Henry too. He was essentially an egalitarian. Stone married him. And one of the things that she did was on the day of her wedding, they gave a public speech against marriage as an institution and wrote the words obey out of the vows, read a public proclamation about Stone keeping her maiden name. And so in the 19th century, if you were a woman who kept your maiden name, which was very rare, you became known as a Lucy Stoner. In the 19th century, if someone called you a stoner, it wasn't because you were high all the time. It was because you were a woman who refused to take your husband's name. She was kind of a badass in that way. She just set so many precedents for women. And she's a woman that I think gets overlooked a lot in suffrage history just because so many people focus on Stanton and Anthony. Through abolition, a lot of women gained a greater desire to advocate for the rights of others. And it's through this advocation of the rights of others that they started to have an understanding of advocating rights for themselves. This all comes to a head in 1840 when a huge delegation of American abolitionists traveled to London for an anti-slavery convention. Among the delegates were, of course, Garrison, another individual named Wendell Phillips, who was a minister and an abolitionist speaker and writer, Lucretia Mott and her husband, James, and then a very young woman who attended the convention on her honeymoon, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. When they arrived, the women were denied seating in the meeting. They were basically told, you can't come in here. This is for men only. 
Well, the American men, like Garrison and Phillips and Mott, advocated that the women should be allowed to participate and basically called the Brits out on their hypocrisy. Hey, you can't say that, you know, slavery is wrong and that we should defend the rights of this group of people while denying this group of people rights. In fact, Garrison himself even said, I can take no part in a convention that strikes down the most sacred rights of all women. It was the moment that really tied abolition to women's rights as an argument for universal humanity and Christian ethics. And it really marks the beginning of an organized women's right movement. It was also the moment when Elizabeth Cady Stanton said to Lucretia Mott, hey, we should have our own convention. And then eight years later, we see the first women's rights convention in the world being held at Seneca Falls, New York. Much of the mythology surrounding the 1848 Seneca Falls convention comes from a history about the suffrage movement that was written after Reconstruction and was written by Stanton herself and Susan B. Anthony. This is discussed in a wonderful book by an historian, Lisa Tetralt, and the book is called The Myth of Seneca Falls. And if you have not read it, I highly encourage you to do so. And I will be linking it below in my notes. Tetralt says that Seneca Falls was a moment that has been created and constructed to be historic. Sally McMillan, who is another historian, argues that Seneca Falls was not really a significant event in history, but it's one that has been revised to seem more important than it was at the time. Whether or not you believe Seneca Falls was a, a historic watershed milestone moment in history, it is still one that is deserving of being talked about. So Seneca Falls is a town located along the Erie Canal and the Erie Canal, like most of Upper New York, was a hotbed of radical activism because the canal brought in all kinds of people and lots of different ideas and emerged. So think of the canal towns as like modern day cities. You know, whenever a lot of different people live in close proximity, you're going to have a lot more diversity and exchange of ideas. And Seneca Falls is where Stanton was living at the time. It was the first women's rights convention in the world, but it was not the biggest. But one of the things that was done at this convention was the creation and signing of a document called the Declaration of Sentiments. And this Declaration of Sentiments outlined all of the issues that Stanton, in large part, because she's the one who wrote it, believed were pertinent to the women's rights movement. Many of these issues included education, marriage, legal standing, divorce, and of course, suffrage. And it's the last one that was really controversial because there were a lot of people, a lot of abolitionists, a lot of women's abolitionists who also supported women's rights believed that suffrage was going to turn them into a joke. In fact, Lucretia Mott told Stanton, you're going to make us a laughing stock. You're going to make fools of all of us if you include this in the declaration. It was one of those issues that just mentioning it in public at that time created controversy. It was a really out there idea, the idea that women should be able to vote. 68 women 
and 32 men signed the Declaration of Sentiments. Some of the key men who were there who signed the document included William Lloyd Garrison and James Mott, but there was another individual who was there, and it was because of this individual that the huge debate on the issue of voting rights for women actually went in Stanton's favor and suffrage was put into the Declaration of Sentiments. This man stood up and spoke for suffrage and said, hey, we can't say that we are for women's rights if we don't also include this. And it was his argument and his speech that really changed the opinion of a lot of people and allowed suffrage to be included in the declaration of its sentiments. And this individual was Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, who of course is well known for being a former slave turned abolitionist, a very prominent individual in American history. And he later recalled of that moment when he spoke up that when he ran away from slavery, it was for himself, but that when he advocated emancipation, it was for his people, but that when he stood up for women's rights, he was out of the question. He did it not because it benefited him, but because it was the right thing to do. Frederick Douglass would remain one of the most prominent advocates for women's rights and later suffrage in the history of the movement. So the Seneca Falls Convention was not well received in the press and was considered to be a joke. There were references to the men at the convention calling them hen-pecked husbands and referring to them as sissies because they were standing up for women's rights and letting the women speak for them. Despite this negative publicity, Seneca Falls is important because it really pushed the idea of women's rights as its own movement. It's not that people weren't advocating for women's rights before Seneca Falls. It's just that after Seneca Falls, the women's rights movement really started to organize. After Seneca Falls, Elizabeth Cady Stanton meets Susan B. Anthony in Seneca Falls, in large part due to a mutual friend, Amelia Bloomer. Bloomer was a dress reform radical. She was a woman who wore pants, and that was very controversial. She introduced Stanton and Anthony and at first, Anthony was not very impressed by Stanton, but later they became solid friends and also created a lifelong working partnership dedicated towards women's rights and women's suffrage. And in fact, when interviewed, Anthony would often refer to Elizabeth Cady Stanton as she forged the thunderbolts and I'm the one that threw them because that was how Stanton and Anthony's partnership worked. Stanton was the writer, the intellectual. Anthony was the activist, the feet on the ground, the one who would go and give these public demonstrations. And so together they really collaborated so much so that in history you can't really mention one of them without mentioning the other one. Between 1848 and the Civil War, there were a lot of conventions. Every year there would be a convention for women's rights. In 1850, the first national women's rights convention in the United States was held in Worcester, Massachusetts. One of the big arguments that they had was whether or not men should be a part of the movement. Some people said no, some people said yes. In 1851, there was a women's rights convention in Akron, Ohio. This is where Sojourner Truth gives her famous Ain't I a Woman speech. Up until 1860, women's rights advocates continued to hold conventions, give speeches, write pamphlets, 
write letters, communicate with people in different parts of the country, trying to really create a national movement that would address all of these issues. Then a bigger event minimized women's rights for a while, and this was the Civil War. So from 1860 to 1865, war was raging in the United States between the northern and southern parts of the country over the issue of slavery. I don't care what anyone tells you, the Civil War was about slavery. Here endeth the lesson. The Civil War put a pause button on women's rights activism. Abolition became the priority. The Civil War influenced a number of women to become involved in suffrage after the war. Women like Clara Barton, Dorothea Dix, Mary Livermore, all of whom had connections to either nursing or prison reform, asylum reform movements. Many of these individuals became involved in suffrage after the Civil War. And just like with the American Revolution, during the Civil War, women played a huge role serving as nurses. Nursing became an organized profession during the Civil War under Clara Barton and Mary Livermore. They served as spies, both for the North and for the Confederacy. They served as soldiers, oftentimes dressing as men and fighting. They were camp women. Many of these individuals believed that because of their efforts in the Civil War, because of their support of the North, that the vote would be granted to them as a thanks for supporting the war effort. So in 1865, when the war officially ended, this is when we see women's rights shifting to women's suffrage. The former women's rights activists slash abolitionists are now focusing on suffrage. But suffrage for whom? And this becomes the big question in the women's movement. During Reconstruction, there were three amendments passed aimed at African Americans in the South. The first was the 13th Amendment, and this was the amendment to end slavery in the United States, except in the cases of incarceration. The 14th Amendment, which grants citizenship rights to anyone born in the United States. And then the 15th Amendment, which granted black men voting rights. And it's the 14th and 15th Amendment that created a lot of controversy in the women's suffrage movement. What did women suffragists have against the 14th and 15th Amendment? Remember, many of these individuals were abolitionists, so they should not have a problem with African Americans being citizens and voting. With the 14th Amendment, this is the first time in the U.S. Constitution that the word male explicitly appears. And it sets the stage for the 15th Amendment to be the first time that voting rights is explicitly assumed to be male. Prior to the 14th and 15th Amendment, citizenship and voting rights had never been explicitly stated to be male. It had always been assumed but never stated. It's very divisive to the suffrage movement. You have two groups that emerge during this debate. You have those who say, let's give black men the right to vote first. That's the priority. And you have others saying, no, white women deserve the right to vote first. The issue of male suffrage also becomes one of racial suffrage. With the 14th Amendment, women really try to use this amendment to work for them. Between 1868 and 1872, you have women attempting to register for voting, citing the 14th Amendment, including Lucy Stone, Marianne Shad Carey, who was an African-American suffragist, and Susan 
Susan B. Anthony. And in 1872, Susan B. Anthony was arrested for voting and she was charged a $100 fine for attempting to break the law. And of course, Susan B. Anthony told them, I'm not paying a dollar of your penalty. And she never did. She never paid that penalty. The 14th Amendment split the debate on women's voting rights into two camps. And it's these two camps that really define much of the suffrage activism until the beginning of the 20th century. The first group was the National Woman Suffrage Association. And this was formed in 1869 by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. This was the organization that supported white women voting. Stanton and Anthony, even though they had been abolitionists, even though they were close friends with Frederick Douglass and a number of black suffragists, began to align themselves with Southern white men in order to gain support for suffrage for white women, uh, including one prominent individual named George Francis Train, who was a very prominent supporter of white supremacy. They promoted voting for white women to maintain racial superiority in large part because they were so focused on equality of women that they were willing to use these racially based arguments in order to get more women the right to vote. NASA also rejected male participation in large part the male abolitionists and suffragists that they had aligned themselves with before the Civil War were some of the ones after the Civil War who were saying, I support suffrage for women too, but we got to take this one step at a time. Let's get the black men protected under law first because then they can protect their families and then we can focus on the women. But Stanton and Anthony were not feeling that. They wanted to focus on equality of women then and there. They wanted a universal amendment to the Constitution granting women the right to vote. In contrast, the American Woman Suffrage Association was formed by Lucy Stone and her husband, Henry Brown Blackwell, and also Garrison, Wendell Phillips, Mary Livermore, and Frederick Douglass. They supported the 14th Amendment as a priority, and then they would work for woman suffrage. In other words, they weren't saying no women's suffrage. They were saying, let's take care of black men first because that's the priority because of all the stuff that was happening in the Reconstruction South, lynchings and racial violence and the rise of the Klan. And then we'll take care of women's suffrage. This was an organization that included male support. In fact, Susan B. Anthony used to dryly refer to Asa as Lucy Stone and all of her admirers or Lucy Stone and all of her male friends. And they argued for a state-by-state -state campaign. From 1869 until 1890, these two organizations in reality spent more time fighting each other than they did fighting for the cause of suffrage. Much of this period of suffrage history is more so about the tensions and the hostilities between these two groups of people who had once been friends and allies and who were now considered enemies because of different tactics. There were still a few victories. That same year, Wyoming Territory became the first territory that granted women the right to vote and hold public office. And it was followed later by Utah in 1870, Colorado in 1893, and then Idaho in 1896. Then the states 
approving women's voting rights stopped, the next state that would grant women's suffrage would be Washington state in 1910. Why did these western states grant women the right to vote? Well, it wasn't because they were more liberated than the rest of the country, because that was not the case. Oftentimes, it was because they wanted to attract female settlers. In the case of Wyoming and then later Utah, they were both territories. They wanted to protect or prevent personal practices that they found to be disturbing. So in the case of Utah with polygamy, that was a huge issue, especially with the, the Mormon community in that time. And then also some of it was just pure and plain racism. They wanted to prevent minority groups from voting. Native Americans, Asian Americans, African Americans. It was also an effort to recruit Eastern support for statehood. And then it was used to embarrass political opponents. In fact, Wyoming granted women the right to vote in large part because the legislature wanted to target the governor as being pro-suffrage. The final reason was because there began to emerge this idea that women's purifying influence, remember it goes back Back to that whole purity, piety, domesticity, submissiveness characteristics, that women's purifying influence would have a good impact on society. And this becomes a very popular argument for why women should be granted the right to vote. Wyoming and the other Western states really launched this state versus federal campaigns with NASA saying federal campaign, federal amendment, and also saying we got to do it state by state or we'll never get there. At the same time, other people began to get involved in women's suffrage. And one of the most prominent individuals that got involved in women's suffrage during this period was a very controversial one named Victoria Woodhull. Woodhull was controversial not because she supported women's suffrage or women's rights, but because of all the other things that she supported and did. Woodhull had grown up very poor. She was the daughter of an infamous con man. In her lifetime, she served as a newspaper publisher slash editor, a fortune teller, a medium, so someone who conducts seances. She was the first woman to own a stock brokerage firm on Wall Street, and she was the first woman to own a weekly newspaper, and she ran for president in 1872. So Victoria Woodhull certainly lived a very full life. In addition, she was also a supporter of spiritualism. So seances, ghosts, mediums, things like that. Suffrage, legal prostitution, sex education, vegetarianism, dress reform, birth control, and free love, meaning sex outside of marriage. So Victoria Woodhull was too controversial for most suffragists. And a lot of suffragists believed that she would do more damage to the movement than she would help the movement. But Victoria Woodhull was a very interesting character and she did do a lot to promote suffrage. She didn't always do it in the right way, but she did do a lot to promote suffrage. And when she ran for president in 1872, that also put suffrage on the map. From 1869 to 1890, as I've already stated, NASA and ASA spent the majority of of their time going back and forth with one another. Then in 1890, the two organizations merged together to form the National American Woman Suffrage Association. And they would use the acronym NASA for short. The merging of these two organizations into one was mostly because the first generation of suffrage activists was growing older 
and they wanted to leave behind a strong movement and legacy. The second was the younger generation that was taking over didn't want to continue all the fighting and the bickering. We start to see people like Carrie Chapman Catt and Anna Howard Shaw become very involved in the suffrage movement. They focused on winning suffrage for women with state-to-state campaigns. They wanted a federal amendment, but they very quickly recognized that state-to-state campaigns were going to be the best way to go. The organization that formed out of this merger was very moderate and conservative in their approach and tactics. From 1890 to 1910, there wasn't a lot of stuff that occurred in the suffrage movement. This period is known by suffrage historians as the suffrage doldrums. By 1906, both Stanton and Anthony had died, as well as Lucy Stone. During the suffrage doldrums period, we see a movement that is trying to figure out what their next steps are. And it is this movement, a younger generation, starting in the 1910s, that advocate in some very militant ways for the women's right to vote in the creation of the 19th Amendment. And that is what we will talk about when we discuss the 20th century movement. book recommendations. There are a lot of books on this period of time, so I'm only going to highlight a few of my favorites, especially the ones that I used for research. So the first, of course, is Christine Stansel's The Feminist Promise, 1792 to Present. If you only read one book about women's rights and women's suffrage, this is the book you need to read because it covers everything from the American Revolution all the way up to present day, and it looks at all of women's rights, all of suffrage, women's liberation as this feminist promise in America. And it's a really good book, so I encourage you to read it. If you're interested in more specific books about suffrage, Lisa Tetrault, The Myth of Seneca Falls, Memory, and The Women's Suffrage Movement, 1848 to 1898 is a really good book and also one that I think is pivotal to the understanding of not just Seneca Falls but also the 19th century movement period. Sally McMillan's Seneca Falls and the Origins of Women's Rights. There are a few other books that are worth mentioning. John McClymer wrote a book called This High and Holy Moment which is about the 1850 Convention of Women's Rights. It's really good. Beverly Beaton wrote an article called called How the West Was Won for Woman's Suffrage, and it's in a edited compilation by Marjorie Spruill Wheeler, One Woman, One Vote, that's very significant and has a lot of great articles about the suffrage movement. If you're looking for a good book about the 14th Amendment debate, then I suggest you check out Laura Free's book called Suffrage Reconstructed. And of course, primary sources. Obviously, the Declaration of Sentiments is widely available on the internet and something that you could read, and I encourage you to do so. You could also read Elizabeth Cady Stanton's autobiography, 80 Years or More. Lynn Schur wrote a really excellent biography of Susan B. Anthony called In Her Own Right, and it's interspersed with stories from her life and documents and quotes, all of which give you kind of a holistic picture of Susan B. Anthony. And then Lucy Stone, there are a couple of really good biographies about Lucy Stone. The first one is Lucy Stone Speaking Out for Equality by Andrea Moore Kerr. 
and Lucy Stone, An Unapologetic Life by Sally McMillan, the same historian that wrote the Origins of the Women's Rights Movement book that I recommended. Finally, Lucretia Mott Speaks, The Essential Speeches and Sermons, and this is edited by Christopher Dinsmore. All of these autobiographies give you just a snapshot, and of course there are more. There's so many more books that I could recommend, and I will post some suggestions on my Instagram as well as in the notes. If you're interested in learning more about the 19th century women's rights movement, then I really encourage you to check out any of these resources. So that's it for today. In our next episode, we will talk about the women's suffrage movement of the 20th century, how it changed from the 19th, and how it ultimately led to the ratification of the 19th Amendment. See you soon, and I hope, as always, that you join me again on Making Her Story. Thank you.